years, we've featured a lot of startups on this show. Some have succeeded, some have failed. All of them have provided some sort of vision for where agriculture is headed. Today, we remember 10 of those companies who, after we featured them here on the show, went on to be acquired. I wanted to build a product that could get traction before I would ever ask anybody to give us money. You know, we know in this kind of business, you need to get that first year right. It's not like software where you can kind of have customers fix the bugs for you. Going back through these 10 interviews, I asked myself what stood out about these companies and how did they think about customers, product development, growth, impact, and competitors? If nobody was doing that, I'll be more concerned that am I chasing the wrong thing. So it's good to see some crowd as long as you're leading the pack. We're very agile, so we're always iterating on the satellite designs. Every three or six months, we're launching a new version of the satellite. Today, we revisit those 10 episodes and hear about when those companies were acquired and by whom. And we'll try to pull out some insights along the way about what may have contributed to their success when so many others often fail. I think the future of ag is going to have to be something where human creativity and human knowledge is at the center of it. We need more innovation. We need more companies coming through. The money is there to support them. Revisiting 10 former guests who now have been acquired on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Well, hello, fellow ag nerds. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week you and I get to sit down with the founders, farmers, innovators, and investors shaping the future of the ag industry. Now, over the past couple of weeks here in September of 2022, two former guests of this podcast, Vince and Telesense, have each announced that they are being acquired. And this prompted a random idea in my head of an episode titled The 10 Former Guests That Have Been Acquired. But of course, I had no idea, have there even been 10 former guests that have been acquired yet? Well, a quick scan of previous episodes and a little bit of Googling revealed that actually, yes, there have been at least 10 that have been acquired in some form or fashion. So I spent a day going through and re-listening to each of those 10 episodes, researching when they were acquired and by whom, and trying to pull out some sort of insights that might give us some indications about what allowed these companies to get to the finish line, so to speak. And really, that's what I have to share with you here today. But before we dive in, I want to take a minute to thank our quarterly presenting sponsor, which is the engine of Canada's agriculture industry, Calgary, Alberta. Located in the heart of Alberta's best growing land, Calgary has it all. With more than 22 facilities in Alberta playing a critical role in ag research and innovation, Calgary is a hub for precision agriculture and agricultural technology. The Calgary region has proximity to customers, abundant primary agricultural commodities, and a growing cluster of value-added processing capacity. That's why multinational agribusiness leaders call Calgary home. In Calgary, they're leading the agribusiness revolution, and you are welcome to join. Visit CalgaryAgBusiness.com to learn more. That's CalgaryAgBusiness.com. And thank you so much to Calgary Economic Development for supporting the Future of Agriculture podcast. Okay, well, let's get into the episode here by first me giving some context to this list of 10 companies that you're about to hear from. I only included companies that we featured before the acquisition. So you won't hear from companies that we did feature on this podcast that were acquired, but they were acquired before they were on the show. Uh, That's people like Pasture Bird and Ag World and Granular and Smart Ag and Climate Corp. Um, But there is a really important disclaimer that I hope everyone will listen to and take into account before moving forward. This is very, very important. An acquisition does not necessarily mean that the company was or is successful. 
Some on this list, for sure, are huge wins for the founders and their investors, if they even had any. Others could possibly be little more than the acquirer giving the team jobs within the larger organization uh, and maybe some some money or equity on the side. I'm not lauding each of these as reaching the pinnacle of success necessarily. I'm not saying these are the top 10 startups that we've ever had on the show, uh, but they each did create at least enough value out of nothing initially for most of them uh, to warrant being acquired. And revisiting them certainly does help to provide an interesting development to their story of how they're shaping the future of agriculture. So this list is in no particular order and not indicative of which acquisitions are most or least successful, uh, which is something that, frankly, I just don't know because they don't tend to make those details clear in the publicly available announcements of the acquisition. Uh, Which brings me to my next disclaimer. I'm only using publicly available information to talk about these acquisitions, which doesn't generally include a price or terms or much about the reasons why even. Sure, I hear things in the rumor mill just like a lot of you do uh, through off the record conversations and the like, but I'm not including those. I'm only including my impressions from their original interview, what stands out about them versus other companies and founders that I've had experience with and what was announced after the acquisition took place. So I think there's some really interesting stuff here, but I don't want to mislead anyone into thinking that all of these just hit grand slams by being acquired. The fact is, though, they were acquired, and I think it's interesting to revisit the story after that point. All right, uh, I'm going to start with a couple of general observations here. There are some cliches when it comes to what makes a great startup, and they're probably cliches for a reason. All 10 of the companies you're about to hear from have very strong founders and very strong teams. They've got a total addressable market or TAM that's big enough to build a big business in, and they're all focused on a problem and or solution that was part of some sort of broader trend that had some additional tailwinds to it. Things that were kind of developing or things that were happening or interesting sectors of the business or interesting technologies. Now, these factors all seem to be talked about often and frankly are probably table stakes, uh, at least for venture-backed businesses that want to someday achieve an exit like an acquisition. So I'm not going to dwell on these points that much throughout the episode, although certainly they will shine through and they will come up. Instead, I'm trying to look for more. What are the nuances and what might separate these companies from other talented teams in similar spaces that had all those factors also going for them? Uh, As usual, I think there are some really interesting insights in hearing from these founders. And I think anyone who might be interested in business and agriculture will be able to glean something valuable from this episode. I'll kick things off here with the most recent acquisition of a company we featured here on this podcast, Vents, who announced just last week that they were being acquired by Merck Animal Health, who had actually participated in one of their funding rounds as a minority investor. Here's Vents co-founder and CEO Frank Wooten in his February 2021 episode talking about how their virtual fencing technology can bring both short-term and long-term value to livestock grazers. At a low level, we're talking about a grass factory, right? And so Cattlemen's job is to translate that grass into a saleable final product, which is a calf or meat or dairy. And the increase in grass productivity is driven via managing the grass in a particular way. And it also is driven via the soil. And so one of the things that our technology enables is you know, via having very flexible and mobile fencing is the ability to rotationally graze animals with almost no limit in terms of the number of fences that you put up or the way that you want to slice and dice the property. What that allows customers to do 
is increase the productivity of the land. And so what we're talking about is you're creating a feed bank, you know, to either have more animals on that property or to have extra feed, you know, come dormant season, rather than that producer having to, to bring in external sources of feed to support his animals through the winter. The other bucket that we sit in, you know, quite squarely is just animal management and control, right? Fencing and fencing maintenance. Uh, while people don't necessarily always itemize it as all of the costs associated with it, it is a significant percentage of producers' time that they spend and labor that they hire is built either maintaining or building new fencing. And you know, we eliminate that as a work stream on the farm. And this, to me, is one thing that really stands out about vents and seems to be common among these ag tech companies that succeed. They can produce an immediate or at least near term return on investment. You'll hear that multiple times in this episode, not just a promise of future value. Another thing that's going to come up again and again is a deep connection these companies have with early customers and their ability to empathize with the needs of those customers. In fact, Frank said he spent months living with early customers as they were developing the product. All of the ways that we have built the product have been based on, you know, kind of two high level beliefs. One is we have spent an extreme amount of time trying to understand the economics of a cow-calf operation and, and of producers. And that has driven us to make a ton of decisions at the product level that are focused on keeping costs down and focused on making sure that we enable our customers to get the return on the product. The other areas that we have focused on in, in areas of differentiation is we're going to market as a, as a service instead of selling hardware. We, we understand that a lot of customers have a shed of devices and technologies that have been sold to them that uh, are either no longer applicable or no longer work, you know, a year or two in. And so there, there's a lot of resistance and a lot of concern when you go to them and you tell them you're selling the next fancy thing. The way that we sell our product to customers is that we, Tell them, look, it's a service. If the service isn't working for you, you shut it down. You don't have to you know, buy all the devices up front. And in doing so, we try and help customers understand that we're in this for the long run with them as well. We're not making money off those collars in day one or even year one or year two for that matter. It's a long-term business relationship that we're looking to have and establish with customers. And I think it's, it's resonated pretty well throughout the industry. In the announcement of the acquisition last week, Merck CEO Rick DeLuca said Vence is a natural fit with Merck Animal Health's growing portfolio of animal intelligence products that include identification, traceability, and monitoring products. If you'd like to hear more about Vence, Frank's full interview can be found in episode 246. And then I caught back up with him for a spotlight at the end of episode 308. I'll make sure I include all the links to everything I use, both written and podcast, in the show notes to today's episode. The next recently acquired former guest is Telesense, which announced just a week before Vents that they were being acquired by UPL. 
More specifically, UPL's post-harvest solution subsidiary, Deco Post-Harvest. For those that might not remember, Telesense uses sensors and artificial intelligence to monitor temperature, humidity, and carbon dioxide levels in stored grain and other crops. It monitors the condition of stored food commodities and automates the early detection of potential issues such as hotspots, excess moisture, and pests, and mitigates spoilage quality degradation and food waste. Telesense co-founder and CEO Naeem Zafar was on the podcast back in January of 2021. He's a serial entrepreneur who had sold his last company to Oracle and has some great insights on entrepreneurship. I mentioned to him the growing number of competitors that seem to be entering this space, and I really appreciated his perspective on the competitive landscape. Yes, it is attracting attention, no doubt. The competitors come in two buckets. So there are companies who have been making this cable system, fan system for the last 20, 30, 40 years. And they make cable system, then you know they're expensive and they're complicated mechanical devices. So they are still competitor, although we have a box which interfaces with their system and makes them wireless. The second bucket of competitors are some startup companies which are just trying to create a canister or a portable sensor. I just know of two of them. One is focused on fumigation and phosphine detection, which is not our focus. Uh, the second one is a small pods you can toss inside the grain. They are still underfunded. They only have raised about $2 million as compared to we are venture funded and have a lot more customers. So, so they're, they're, they're chasing us. They're a couple of years behind us, but that keeps us on our toes because there is a problem to be solved and money to be made. It will attract attention. If nobody was doing that, I'll be more concerned that am I chasing the wrong thing. So it's good to see some crowd as long as you're leading the pack. I love that. And I think a lot of the other founders on this list would echo that statement just based on the conversations I had with them. Also striking about Telesense, though, is how compelling their roadmap is to growth and expansion beyond just grain elevators to farm bins to even barges and rail cars. Barge is especially very interesting use case because every year, Several barges catch fire. Losing a barge, that's like a $300,000 loss right there, just on the grain itself. So this barge, there is no electronics, there is no way, and the barge is traveling down. What we have, the spear, with the rechargeable battery, once you charge the battery, it is good for two years. And it's the same charger you use for your Android phone. So using the, you know five or six spheres on a barge is really saving money. We have large companies using it today. And we think that use case is very unique. Now we're applying that to rail cars. So grain transport may be even a more interesting use case than grain storage. In the September 16th announcement of the acquisition of Telesense, UPL Global CEO Jai Shroff said, UPL's commitment to reimagining sustainability is not just about helping farmers grow food, but also storing and preserving it. Our acquisition of Telesense furthers our ability to produce constant innovation of smarter and safer solutions to minimize waste at the heart of the food system. thought that was interesting, the focus on the food waste aspect of Telesense's story. Learn more about Telesense in episode 239, which I, of course, recommend. I think there's a ton of insights there from Naeem's extensive entrepreneurial experience, but also you get some commentary there from investors of Telesense at Fulcrum Global Capital. 
The third former guest that's been acquired is certainly a unique one. In October 2020, we featured Dr. Sarah Spangolo, co-founder and CEO of Swarm Technologies. You might recall the episode was on rural connectivity because Swarm's business was launching constellations of small, low-cost satellites to service internet-connected devices anywhere on Earth. About a year later, one of their partners, a company maybe some of you have heard of called SpaceX, announced that they were acquiring Swarm. In that 2020 interview, Sarah described why their solution is a great fit for ag tech. Yeah, so a lot of the sensing companies today in the ag tech space rely on cellular coverage, so they can only deploy where they're cell. And often that's very frustrating because they'll think they have cell in like Napa, and then they'll deploy a bunch of sensors and they don't actually. So it's not super useful. They may also rely on other terrestrial systems like GSM or LoRaWAN or SIGVOX or ZigBee in certain locations. You know, there's all these different terrestrial wireless protocols. The challenges with all of them, of course, is they have limited reach. So, you know, it's only out to maybe tens or hundreds of kilometers in certain cases and then just nothing. So very limited. They can't rely on a single global solution. Some egg tech companies may use Orbcom or Iridium, but again, that's pretty rare just because of the margins and the cost structure of those prohibitively expensive solutions. How that will change with Swarm is that those that are using cellular can now extend their coverage to be truly global, and it will be at a price point that is reasonable for them. So in the egg tech space, it's a lot of people going from using cell in cell to now using Swarm outside of cell. And that allows them to have truly global reach, which is very impactful for a lot of their business cases. One thing that certainly stands out about Sarah and her team is their deep knowledge and experience and talent in this area. She has a PhD in aerospace engineering, worked at NASA and Google before starting Swarm. But the challenges of gaining traction stretch far beyond these technical problems. The team also had to push through some serious regulatory hurdles to make progress, as well as onboard a multitude of partners to make all of this possible. I mean, just to apply for a license, for example, cost about a half a million dollars, and that's just for approval in the U.S., this type of behind-the-scenes persistence seems to be a common thread among successful startups. They do the hard things, not just the flashy things. In fact, I was struck by how few on this list really seemed to invest heavily in marketing and PR. They were just simply more focused on the product and the customer, always focused on learning, iterating, and getting better. Sarah said their focus on low-cost hardware is not just a commercial advantage, but also an advantage in learning and iterating faster than others. We're very agile, so we're always iterating on the satellite designs. Every three or six months, we're launching a new version of the satellite, and we can continuously be iterating. And, you know, in two years, we're probably going to be launching satellites that are 10 times better than the ones we have today or something like that. So we want that flexibility of constantly being able to relaunch and they're at a price point where that's reasonable, whereas like you wouldn't relaunch the Iridium network that frequently. There wasn't a public announcement when SpaceX acquired Swarm in 2021 beyond just the filings with the Federal Communications Commission. I did look for an Elon Musk quote specifically, but I didn't find one. But a year later, Sarah was quoted by Fierce Electronics saying, quote, we're able to do more at SpaceX. We're able to have an even bigger impact on these connectivity solutions, being at a bigger place with more resources. So it's really been an incredible opportunity. Congrats to Sarah. Learn more about Swarm from Sarah in episode 228. 
This is really cool stuff and very useful for many ag technologies. All right, moving on to the fourth acquisition of a former guest. This is an old episode and not a recent acquisition by any means, but a good one to include on this list, in my opinion. In November 2020, John Deere announced that they would be acquiring Fargo-based farm profitability software provider Harvest Profit. Nick Horub is the founder and CEO of the company and appeared on this podcast clear back in episode 80. That was in December of 2017. Unlike most companies on this list, Harvest Profit had not received any venture funding, to my knowledge, and Nick and I talked about the challenges and opportunities at that time of being a bootstrapped startup. You know, there's been some some really astronomical acquisitions in the ag tech space, and that that just leads companies down the line of, you know, building, let's build a big team, and, you know, we're either going to you know, generate traction or we're going to sell. And, you know, along the way here, there's been some big sales, but there's been questionable traction in the marketplace and just the ability for these companies to generate revenue. Well, you know, we're a small business, but we're profitable. We don't need to raise a bunch of money. Um, I've personally never had a customer request a change to our software that I didn't intimately understand. So, you know, I live and breathe this stuff. I still have, uh, you know, 30 active consulting uh, relationships. And so, you know, we don't come from software and got parachuted into the egg world or the opposite. We, li- I live and breathe these numbers. Um, I can go into any one of our customer accounts and, and probably pinpoint some numbers that I, uh, some financial numbers that I think, um, you know, might look a little bit off. And so we have a kind of a rare combination of you know living and breathing in these crop budgets in these grain markets and at the same time you know building great software there are a lot of insights that can be gleaned from Nick's story but one of them is certainly the value of being laser focused on your customer who in Nick's case are business minded farmers primarily in the midwest but i'm pretty sure spread throughout the country if not other countries by now. And if you've had any interactions with Nick or consumed any of his content online, you already know that to be an authentic part of his values and of the company's story. He acknowledged in our interview that being bootstrapped may have some limitations, but for him at least, he said at that point, the pros far outweighed the cons. We're not dead set on always, you know, being a a hundred percent employee owned, but just from a from an ideal standpoint, I wanted to build a product that could get traction before I would ever ask anybody to you know, give us money. So you know, that's just the path we've taken thus far. And you know, right now we have, uh, it's myself and three good developers that we're working with, uh, computer engineers. And when you compare that to other competitors who have teams of uh, you know 10 to Fifty people in their development department—they can just work at a faster pace than us. That's uh, there's no question about that. They can uh, they can maybe build some some bigger features in a more timely fashion than than what we can do. Um, I would say we probably have a, a a little less you know bureaucratic red tape to go through when it comes to making decisions on the future direction of our software, but less people <laughs> equals less development that can get done. So that's really the biggest downfall. In the November 2020 announcement from John Deere, Lane Arthur, who is John Deere's vice president of data application and analytics, said, quote, Harvest Profit builds on the John Deere goal of providing cutting edge technology solutions that empower our customers to make more informed decisions. 
This software provides financial visibility for the customer of their operations, enabling confident and proactive management decisions that make them more profitable and sustainable. If you want to hear from an entrepreneur with relentless commitment to customers and their success, have a listen over to episode 80 with Nick Horeb of Harvest Profit. It's an oldie but a goodie. Cool to see a bootstrapped entrepreneur achieve this level of success. All right, our fifth acquisition today is another old episode. For this one, we go clear back to episode 64, which aired in August of 2017. We featured Christine Sue, co-founder and CEO of PastureMap. When Christine first got interested in agriculture, she immersed herself, sort of similar to Frank Wooten at Vince, uh, living and working on farms and livestock operations. That's where she noticed the need for digital records for grazing animal management. So she started Pasture Map in 2014 and then in 2020 announced that the company had been acquired by Soilworks Natural Capital, which is a benefit corporation devoted to expanding the regenerative agriculture economy. Christine's vision during our interview back in 2017 of helping producers capture data for not only management purposes, but also for value-added ecosystem services was really ahead of its time. One of the biggest parts of our mission as a company, our mission is to help ranchers make more profits building healthy grasslands, is optimizing your pastures is only half of the equation, right? The other half is we need to help ranchers make more revenue for landscapes that are well managed. So uh, there are two large initiatives that I'm focusing on this year. One is soil carbon data. So this space is getting a lot of interest, um, even from the casual consumer now who is a little bit more conversant about soil health. And um, farmers and ranchers know this because many of them have been working for decades on improving soil health. But for the first time, now we have data sets where we're able to integrate soil metrics along with your management practices. So we are working uh, on a, we just received a California USDA grant to integrate soil health metrics with pasture map management data. So you can see which ones of your management practices are driving soil health in your landscape context. Um, So that's very exciting. The The second initiative is okay, well, let's get this data out to consumers. Obviously, obviously, that has to be opt-in from ranchers who want to share that information, but let's get you rewarded for, for tackling regenerative practices and doing the hard work of building healthy ecosystems. Uh, I don't think that producers uh, often get the credit that they deserve for stewarding their landscapes, and it's high time that that, that gets credit um, from, and helps them decouple from, from the commodity pricing fluctuations that they often face. Now, even though Pasture Map caught the wave of attention toward regenerative agriculture at seemingly just the right time, they also noticed something interesting. About 40% of their most active customers were actually conventional ranchers, so they knew they were hitting on a market need. Christine and her team also clued in on another keen insight. It's that technology in agriculture, at least for the most part, needs to augment the farmer or employee not necessarily replace them. So creating something that's seamless and easy to integrate into existing people-driven operations is going to get more traction. Sons and daughters who are inheriting or maybe don't inherit but want to get into the ag space, um, be comfortable with technology that can help them uh, scale their own skills is very valuable because I think the future of ag is going to have to be something that where where human creativity and human knowledge is at the center of it. I don't. I think that Silicon Valley, where I sit, often misses that part. They they think they can automate everything, and I would say you haven't talked to a farmer or a rancher. You can't automate most of that 
creativity and that knowledge of what their the ingenuity that comes with running an operation. But what you can do is save them time with technologies that help them make their day a little easier and make help make them managing their team a little bit easier. PastureMap was the very first acquisition made by SoilWorks Natural Capital, which now lists four other portfolio companies on their website as well. When they acquired PastureMap in 2020, SoilWorks co-founder Ed Burney was quoted as saying, quote, regenerative practices are proven but not yet widely adopted. They rely on a deeper understanding of nature, food quality, and health. We see it as one of the most important trends of the coming decades. In a blog post on the Pasture Map website, Christine Sue said she was excited for what SoilWorks could offer the company, saying that SoilWorks had a, quote, strong technology team, a proven track record in growing software startups, and an aligned mission and values for regenerative agriculture. Listen to the full episode with Christine, as well as Pasture Map customer Byron Palmer on episode 64 of our podcast. There's a lot more to that story there, and I'm sure you'll appreciate it if you haven't listened yet or if you're like me and it's just been a long time. For our sixth company, we're going to go to another software startup focused on the land, but this one is focused on farmland, specifically on the farmland market. When Stephen Broxius joined me for episode 78 back in November of 2017, he was founder and CEO of Turva. As that company grew after our interview, they eventually changed their name from Turva to Farmland Finder. Ultimately, the company developed tools for land sales, price records, transaction details, soil compaction maps, and more. Then, in August of 2021, Farmland Finder announced that they were being acquired by EasyKnock, which had previously been focused on the residential real estate market. More specifically, they purchased Farmland Finder's brand, URL, and sale leaseback platform. A few months after that, Growers Edge announced that they had acquired Farmland Finder's lending and appraisal software and Farmland Sales website. Founder and CEO Stephen Broxius is really a great example of someone who is focused. Rather than try to be all things to everyone interested in farmland, he developed tools for very specific people, functions, and geographies. I think this focus really was a key to their success. Yeah, we've had lots of conversations you know, as a team uh, internally and then externally with uh, farmland appraisers. Um, they find a lot of value in what we're doing because their entire job is to assess what a fair market value for farmland is. So they spend up 60 to 70 percent of their time researching the farmland market and farmland sales. And so that's where we provide a lot of value today. Uh, we've also been able to help a, a good um, variety of farmland brokers who are experts, incredible experts on, in keep, on keeping a beat of the farmland industry. And then some of my favorite phone calls are with individual landowners and farmers. I was talking with a farmer just two days ago. Uh, he's a younger guy. He farms with his dad. He wants to get more into farming um, of his own. So he's just looking for some more uh, land to farm. And he's looking at getting a beginning farmer loan. And so, um, you know, it's exciting getting to talk with farmers um, and landowners who are browsing and looking at things um, just from uh, yeah, every once in a while. Um, but on a more regular basis, we're able to help specifically appraisers um, and farmland brokers who are the experts in farmland in industry. You know, And I really started this whole business. It started off, I grew up on a dairy farm in northwest Iowa. And the thought process was, as a farmer, how do I find uh, land to farm? And how do I know what that farm is worth? Is it good quality? Is it not? I need some more data points to understand. Um, and since that very, um, you know, niche focus, we've been able to broaden that out and 
uh, today I'm helping people that I, uh, you know, honestly had never really met before. And so it's really exciting uh, to do that and see what way the business takes itself as we learn more and do grow as a business. This also gets at another key insight that I think helped make Farmland Finders successful. They worked with established professional experts to help them out rather than trying to cut them out. I think this was critical to their early traction and ultimately allowed them to establish themselves as a respected part of the industry. You know, bringing the agricultural real estate industry online um, has potential to really uh, shift the industry and how people um, interact and think about farmland. And so um, it has potential in, in startup life. We call it disruptive and disruption. Um, but what's really intriguing and in, you know, the investors that um, we have um, really understand that disruption in the agricultural context looks very different than you know disruption in a in a Silicon Valley um, you know or social media based business um, because in agriculture you know you you might have transparency you might have um, things online but there's a relationship factor and an integrity factor and um, you know this kind of you know community around the agricultural values factor and that's what's really exciting. Uh, to folks who are invested in us as a company. In the 2021 announcements of the acquisition of Farmland Finder Assets, EasyNOC CEO Jared Kessler said, quote, Today's acquisition brings Farmland Finder's platform and expertise to EasyNOC, strengthening our offering and our commitment to providing new ways for homeowners and now landowners to convert equity to cash. For their part, Growers Edge CEO Dan Cosgrove added, quote, this acquisition will add tools and resources to strengthen our innovative risk management solutions and expand our focus to help farmers and landowners make data-driven decisions that mitigate risk and better manage their assets and operations. For more, go ahead and listen to our 2017 episode with Stephen Broxius, which is number 78. As a bonus, if you wanted to, you could listen to episodes about Growers Edge, who, as I said, acquired the software assets from Farmland Finder. Dan Cosgrove is in episodes 156 and also 238. Next is another company that really empathizes with the need of agricultural customers. Lee Adams took over as CEO of the farmer-founded irrigation technology company Crop Metrics. Lee had been a member of the board of directors for the company prior to that. In 2019, Lee joined me on episode 165 to describe how Crop Metrics helps farmers irrigate more confidently. Then the following year, they were acquired by CropX. What struck me about the way Lee described CropMetrics' approach was their commitment to having industry-leading support. They were utilizing independent dealers and ag retailers, who Lee said were really part of the backbone of the company. Working closely with that support element, which is the trusted advisor to the growers, I think is something we've really figured out how to do. These independent dealers we have, some, some large ag retailers as well, depend on us and we depend on them because that gives the solution to the grower that gives them confidence. That's, we have a new tagline that we've kind of just formalized. It's irrigate confidently, profitably, and sustainably. But we lead with that confidence piece because it is that trusted advisor that we think makes a, makes a big difference. Now, I realize that over time, the trusted advisor term has become a bit of a cliche, but I really don't think this was lip service. Lee went on to describe how irrigation decisions aren't just business decisions. They're also emotional decisions that require effective support. It's what's happening at 12 to 18 to 24 inches under the ground that you don't see. Mm -hmm. And that's what's affecting what water your crop is, is needing right then at the moment. 
And so the analytics are telling him it's okay. And he would recount this. He said to the group, you know, I could see I was okay, but you know, still my heart's racing and I'm looking out and this is, I mean, this is a powerful emotion, Tim, you know, when you look out and you see red lights flashing, you know, like you see in a wind, you know, a group of wind towers or something like that. But those, those red lights are, are people irrigating. And that's not you. <laughs> so what am I doing wrong? And, he, uh, and so it's a, you know, he'd use words like, Hey, my finger's on the trigger almost, you know, and I want to, want to irrigate. So what does he do? He says like three nights in a row, I had to call my guy to talk me off the ledge. And I mean, the ledge is like turning on the system and spending a lot more money right, on irrigating. But the, the point is that, you know, connecting with someone who is also looking at the same data, who knows your crops, your field, your hybrids you're using, what they're capable of, can say, easy, easy, easy. You're, you're fine here. Let's look at it again. Okay. Now let's remember there's going to be some leaf curling with the heat with this, this particular hybrid, this particular crop. Don't panic. <laughs> In other words, yeah. uh, but it's, it's an emotional one. And that's just one example of many. You could give a kind of on the emotional aspect. At the time of the 2020 acquisition, CropMetrics had more than 500,000 acres under management and over 10 years of in-depth U.S. farm data that was very attractive to CropX, whose president, John Vickapitz, is quoted as saying, adding CropMetrics solutions, extensive dealer network, and experienced support team furthers CropX's mission to become the global leader for in-soil IoT solutions for today's producers. Hear the backstory of CropMetrics in episode 165 with Lee Adams, who I know has listened to several episodes of this podcast on his long trail runs. Some of the companies that I get most excited about because they are rare in the grand scheme of things are those that can offer farmer customers a brand new revenue stream. And that is exactly what our eighth company, Covercress, is trying to do with their gene-edited Pennycress, designed to provide a marketable cash cover crop that is grown in the off-season between beans and corn. Former CEO Jerry Steiner joined me on episode 213. And last month, Bayer announced that they would buy a majority stake in the company, 65%, and then existing investors Bungie and Chevron would retain their ownership of the remaining 35%. So this is a little bit different than a full acquisition, but it's an exit nonetheless for founders and early investors, so I wanted to include it. Plus, I just think it's a cool concept with some great insights. Think of our case right here. We're able to take something which is a weed today and to turn it into something that can be the first real cover crop for the Midwest that you get paid to grow rather than you pay to grow. Because we're breaking that paradigm that exists today that a cover crop is only a long-term investment. We want it to be a long-term return and a short-term return. And this point of getting farmers paid, I think, is key. Covercrest is looking to give those farmers in their target market, as you just heard, both the short-term and the long-term returns. But it's a huge undertaking to develop a new crop, new processing capabilities, new markets for feed and ingredients, all while trying to expand the use of cover crops more generally. But this team has been working on this problem since 2013 and have approached it with patience and humility every step of the way. We're not targeting a lot of land, probably about 5,000 acres. We think you know, most likely this will be in that south central part of Illinois where we get started. 
And we're going to work with farmers that we're already you know, working to recruit. So these will be farmers that get a chance to see one or two crops in a research sense get grown before they grow it. So this first crop for us is about getting started. It's about refining everything and it's about getting it right. You know, we know in this kind of business, you need to get that first year right. It's not like software where you can kind of have customers fix the bugs for you. We're, we're not looking at it that way. We want to get it right before we plant that first crop. And this patience to get things right seems to have paid off. Since our interview, they've struck an offtake agreement with Bungie for Covercrest grain to be processed into oil for renewable diesel and animal feed. And of course, as I mentioned, sold a controlling stake to Bayer. And when the Bayer acquisition was announced, Bayer Crop Science President Rodrigo Santos was quoted as saying, quote, Covercrest is exciting because it has the potential to become an important source of biofuel production as a new harvested rotational crop while giving growers an innovative option to continue effective stewardship of their land and improve soil quality by acting as a cover crop. Listen to the full interview with Covercrest's then-CEO Jerry Steiner on episode 213, which also includes commentary from investors at Fulcrum Global Capital, just like I mentioned with Telesense. We'll move now to our ninth company here today, Join Bio. Like Covercrest and Vents, Join Bio was acquired by a company that already had an ownership stake in them before the acquisition. This benefit of getting strategic investors on board early and often should not be overlooked by fellow entrepreneurs out there. A potential acquirer is just one of the many benefits of strategic investors, but I would say it's a big one. Joined Bio CEO Mike Milley joined me in episode 160 back in 2019 to talk about Join Bio, which is a joint venture which was formed by Bayer and Ginkgo Bioworks to develop beneficial microbes for farmers. Then earlier this year, it was announced that Ginkgo was acquiring the assets from Bayer and would be integrating Join Bio into their platform, which would then include a flagship commercialization partnership back with Bayer. I know it's a little bit confusing, but but we'll clarify here in just a minute. Join Bio work is an example, like Covercrest, of the need for patient and strategic capital to really advance ag technology. They've set this up to tackle problems that realistically are going to take four, five, six years. They're not going to happen in 18 months. And a lot of companies, venture capital-backed companies, get funded and everybody wants them to get to the market as fast as possible. And you take a lot of, you, you, you do whatever you can to keep the money coming in and you do whatever you can to keep the investors happy. In our case, and, and it gets back to sort of the unique structure of the joint venture, we've got two parents who came into this knowing that these were big problems, knowing that to do something this different from what's been done before, it's going to take three, four or five years. And so realistically, you know, we're at least that far out, I would say. And, and I'd say the other part of this is if you think about the mechanics of seed treatment on corn, if you really are going to get on all the corn seed in the U.S., that's going to go through Bayer with the DeKalb franchise and Pioneer. That, that's who has the germplasm. That's who has the seed. And if you want to be on 70, 80, 90 percent of the corn seed in the U.S., you have to go through them because they own it. And so that means you have a process of a couple of years where they have to try it in their field trials with their people and it has to work. And if you go through that, then it eventually will, if it, if it performs, it will actually become, a, it will become part of their primary seed treatment. But you have to earn that. You have to earn it. And so 
there's a, because of cycles on this stuff, you know, you do it a couple of years, they do it a couple of years. Realistically, before you actually have it on a commercial, a major commercial launch, you know, it, it's going to be four or five years. The details of Ginkgo Bioworks' acquisition of Join Bio is as unconventional as the company's origins. Uh, the partnership between Ginkgo and Bayer remains, with Ginkgo acquiring the team and the assets and Bayer maintaining their role as commercialization partner for agricultural microbes. Uh, at least that's the best way I could understand it through the very unclear press releases. Respectfully, PR people, let's just start using plain language, please. Uh, in one of those releases, Ginkgo Bioworks CEO and co-founder Jason Kelly was quoted as saying, quote, we are incredibly impressed by the success of the joint bio team and the deep expertise of Bayer's West Sacramento R&D team and are thrilled to have them join Ginkgo as we build deep end-to-end -end capabilities in ag biologicals on top of our large-scale horizontal platform. Full episode with Join Bio CEO Mike Milley can be found in episode 160. He does a great job of talking about the potential for improved microbial technologies in agriculture. Last but not least, our final acquired company is Cantus. I spoke with then-CEO Aidan Connolly in episode 151 back in 2019 about the company's animal recognition technology. One common theme among all of the companies on this list is focus, whether that's on a specific customer, segment, or market, while ignoring opportunities that exist outside of that core focus. Cantus chose to focus on dairy rather than approach every market in animal ag. This focus seemed to have served them well, and they were acquired by EverAg in June of this year. This focus on dairy, especially U.S.-based dairy, is something that I asked Aiden about in our interview. We have to focus in the initial stages to be crystal clear as to what we are trying to achieve. And unfortunately, with a lot of technologies and a lot of technology people, it's a bit like being the kid in the candy store. It seems as though you can, you can do anything. Hmm. And we probably can do anything. Um, it is certainly possible to observe, for argument's sake, sow behavior and see how they interact with the weaning pigs. It could be possible to look at turkeys and see do they have issues with legs or are they, uh, are they brooding too much or too little? Uh, what could you do with respect to broiler breeders? So you, you just, you know, you can see so many different applications for it. But of course, businesses are built on, on business. A lot of startups struggle with that idea that they have to focus. Um, so we're, our focus is very crystal clear. We're focused on the United States. We're focused on dairy cows. We're focused on, um, on that business. And then based on that success, then obviously a lot of things can happen but we've got to get that one right first. In the announcement of the acquisition of Cantus, EverAg CEO Scott Sexton said, we believe precision agriculture now in the dairy barn is the future. We're committed to growing, expanding, and embedding Cantus technology into our software suite that spans the supply chain. Listen to the full episode with Aiden Connolly in episode 151. And as a bonus, if you'd like, you can hear an episode with EverAg Scott Sexton, who I just mentioned, in episode 312. So that's it. That's the 10 insights I personally pulled from this episode for me after the obvious of have a great team, a big market and the tailwinds of trends in your favor are to be hyper focused on customer success. Find a model that includes immediate ROI or at least a quick win. Find strategic investors or partners or both early and often be obsessed with getting the product right 
create a model of rapid learning and iteration, acknowledge the challenges that lie ahead and be open about them, understand the emotions behind the customer. It's a business decision, sure, but it's often a personal decision as well. Try to find models that open up new revenue streams for customers instead of just trying to pitch them on small cost reductions or small yield bumps. Getting it right is going to take time. Find patient capital and partners. You don't need to disrupt everything. Start with a manageable focus where you can add real value and build from there. Finally, marketing and PR aren't hacks for lack of traction. Focus on the customer and product market fit. But if you're going to do PR, make sure podcasters like me can at least understand your press releases. That's my list, but what's yours? I want to know your takeaways from these 10 companies or even the companies you think that will someday be on this list in the future. Tag me on Twitter or LinkedIn with your perspectives, or you can always email me at timatagrad.com. Sorry, a bit of a long one here today, but I wanted to do 10 because I could. Thanks so much for your time and your attention. I don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. 